All right, here we go. So we're recording once more. This will be our third conversation, uh, Jason. This, thanks again for coming back and, and taking all this time to talk to me about this old video game. How have you been? I've been good. Um, I've, in preparation for this conversation, I've been delving more into like fan theories um, oh, cool. about Xenogears. Um, and like with everything Xenogears, there seems to be no agreement. So I'm not sure if I actually learned anything, but it was interesting to see people's take on things. Yeah, yeah, no, there. that's something I have sort of studiously avoided as I've been doing this project is like not reading other people's interpretations and, and takes on things. Um, although I, I do sometimes have to, like I just have no idea what's going on. So I need someone to tell me at least a little bit. Um, so yeah, with, with a few exceptions, like the study guide, I've looked at because it, it goes into a lot of the, the translation issues and stuff I, I wouldn't otherwise have no access to. And I, and I do read like scripts and, and look at playthroughs sometimes to, to freshen up on stuff. But, um, but yeah, the fan theory, that whole universe uh, is one I haven't delved into too much, though I know there's tons of stuff out there. Um, and I think some of it's pretty well written and probably, you know, represents some considerable uh, uh, expertise and, and, and knowledge about some of this stuff. Um, was there anything in particular that you, you found interesting or, or helpful of, of what you've been reading? Yeah, so I, I concentrated on just the fan theories about the very ending. Okay. Um, and there seemed to be disagreement as to whether truly this is the last reincarnations of Abel and Ellie. Yeah. Um, and when I, you know, first saw the ending, I thought it was clear that, um, you know, this was supposed to be a happy ending, a utopian ending, and this was the last reincarnations, um, and humanity gets to, like, live in peace. But um, apparently that's not um, universal. It's not a universal sort of conclusion people came to. And, uh, yeah, I was curious what, what your um, take on that was. Yeah, I, so I, I would agree with you. Um, the way that the ending is presented, it does seem pretty conclusive, right? Like we get um, our, our party reunited. Uh, we even get Corellion kind of riding off into the sunset, right? Uh, so so that, that seems like they um, kind of wrapped up and uh, concluded the, the long, long story that starts, you know, 10,000 years in the past. Um, but then if you zoom out, I guess people have done this and, and you read some of the perfect works materials, which are the kind of lore books, right, behind this game. Then you see that, no, you know, this was all this 10,000 year period and these events uh, in the present and 500 years ago and those other reincarnations, right, they're all but a minor like piece of this much larger history, right, which in fact in, entails uh, a six it's, this is the fifth, and there's going to be a sixth uh, episode yet, which is sort of obscure what that's going to be about. But we need, you know, some kind of conflict for there to be further story here. Um, yeah, so I guess people who argue that probably have been looking at some perfect works. Have, have you, is that, does that ring true? Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I've, I would love to be able to get my hands on those. They, they just the, the materials and the artwork um, it seems like such a high quality publication, but unfortunately, yeah, I've never been able to to read any of them. Yeah, um, there's so there's a uh, a scanlation. Somebody put out. Uh, there might be more than one, but 
there's at least one out there um, where they took the imagery and uh, somehow, you know, like scratched off all the Japanese words and put some English words in their place and, and made it sort of fit um, like a palimpsest, you know, a, an electronic palimpsest. It's, it's very impressive. Um, it's not always the most, probably the most, uh, you know, perfect English, I guess. Uh, it's, it's a little awkward and clunky, but, you know, so is the translation <laughs> that Square did. So um, this fan just like did that. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, it's also read out as an audio book on this uh, podcast that um, is still going, I think. They, they, I don't know if they've finished their work on it or not, but the Retrograde Amnesia guys, uh, who have been gracious enough to talk to me on here too, um, they've been reading it as a, as a kind of audiobook version and kind of tidying up some of the language um, to at least make it flow better. I don't think they have access to Japanese to know if it's any more accurate or not. But But yeah, so there's a couple ways out there to to get, you know, some of this, at least secondhand or thirdhand, right? But still, uh, yeah. And, you know, it's got Ellie on the cover um, reflected in this pool as uh, the um, the Miang sort of counterpart. Um, mm -hmm. So that in itself is like super interesting uh, and it just gets better from there, really. You, you get so deep into the lore if, if you start going down that rabbit hole. Um, I think you'd probably like it, honestly, but from what you've been talking about with, with your love of lore. Um, so I hope you, I hope you're able to, I don't know, I, I can send you a link or something, but. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to read it. Um, and you know, it would be unusual for a story like this to, when you telescope outwards, for it to ultimately be linear. It's just so cyclical in nature that um, for it to have an abrupt ending like that seems outside the, the very like mechanics of the story. Yes, that's one thing I was going to ask. Was the story, so although it does seem conclusive, was it satisfying? Did, 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 the, did the ending, it sounds like you're saying, no, not really, right? Like this, this kind of happy ending was maybe not entirely satisfying in the context of the story as a whole. Um, what did you make of the ending? Like the, the one that we get here anyway? You know, it's so tonally different, especially with so much dark material that is peppered throughout um, Xenogears, you know, there are, you know, there's the mass destruction of small towns, there's like literal, well, I guess sort of cannibalism, um, you know, sinister authoritarian governments invigilating over the, you know, entireties of civilizations. And so for it to have kind of like this adult-oriented happy pop song at the end playing while, you know, the gang is reunited, did feel, I don't want to say that it felt tacked on. It, it could even be like a master stroke where it's this um, slate of hand where this almost sugary sweet ending is in fact just um, a, a very minor prelude to a, a possibly even darker story. That's how I want to view it. Nice. Even darker continuation. I like that a lot. I mean, as we know, as is well documented, that like they were really running out of time on this project by the end, the developers, and they kind of had to uh, just race through the second disc, right? Um, and they told the story, which is a really rich and interesting story, uh, in a way that's almost breaking the the video game medium, right? And and just kind of 
dumping information on us uh, and with very mi minimal gameplay. Um, but then they do have a very elaborate and beautiful, you know, ending anime sequence. Uh, and I love the songs, you know, the music that plays is just, it's awesome. I, I, yeah, I get your, you know, it's a little bit of like adult easy listening uh, to an extent, but, but it's still pretty good as far as that goes. And, and I do think, you know, thinking of it as a, um, a way for the developers to sort of say, yeah, here's, here's what you get, like you consumer who's forcing us to like finish this artwork like really fast and, and just get it out there. Like here, I hope you like it, right? But we're, we're gonna have something else in store for you if we ever get the chance to make, you know, the proper sequel and prequel and, and all of the, um, the full scope of their story sort of get to realize it, right? Um, I, I like that idea. Yeah, and actually, I was maybe was being a little bit um, oversimplifying when I, I said the tone was outside of um, the rest of the game when what I actually love about the game is its contrasts. You know, there are moments of like pastoral beauty. There's like moments of like pure cyberpunk, cold machinery, you know, um, lifelessness. And then there are like silly sort of childish moments, there's a lot of dark material, there's a lot of light material. So um, now that I think about it, you know, the world of Xenogears and just the, its aesthetic in general almost allows for any kind of content, which yeah. is pretty interesting for a video game. Yeah, including up to and including, right, you know, choo-choo bouncing around between <laughs> your party members as they watch, like, you know, the the second coming of, of Christ, essentially, <laughs> the, the revelation, uh, and um, then like a, a beautiful little, you know, um, uh, trill of music and a coda there with the angel feather sort of like fluttering past, whether from Krellion or from Xenogears' wings or what, what have you, right? It's like, it's so, it's so, yes, yeah, silly, lighthearted, um, sentimental, but also, yeah, it you know, it has you up there uh, in some you know quasi threshold onto the 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 dimension of you know true existence, right? Of like the wave existence, whatever that is, um, essentially God, right? And not the fake God that you already beat up down <laughs> down in its lair, but like the real God. Uh, so yeah, I I think in particular, I'm curious about your take on Krellion's, um conclusion that he gets here uh and then yeah we can think i guess about the world that he's leaving but um does he deserve the sort of happy ending that he seems to get well i i do think you know he in a way is kind of you know the trope of the sort of the tortured individual who out of his like overwhelming love for humanity is you know, he has that emotional capacity to also create huge amounts of destruction, pain. Um, and so he, he really, he, he really has no place in hum humanity. He almost like feels too much. He has to be part of like the wave existence at this point because he can no longer just be a terrestrial being. Um, so I don't, I, as to whether or not he deserves, I don't know. I, I never saw him as like a pure villain. Um, you know, because so much of it, it of his actions are, you know, 
result of his, you know, love for, you know, one particular person, Sophia. Um, so I, I, yeah, I feel like he, he has extreme humanity there, but he's just kind of a, a chaotic, a chaotic presence, um, <laughs> but not necessarily a pure villain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, his, yeah, his love is, is really playing the long game here, right? Like he has, um, he has been inspired by Sophia to start learning about uh, nanotechnology. It seems like that's sort of the the path he goes down, um, which leads to a lot of his um, evil, malevolent sort of actions, but they're all ultimately for her, right? And for um, making himself into a, a sort of better and uh, a person capable of escaping, right? The escape velocity that he needs to get to that other dimension. Um, yeah. And so he, yeah, I guess there is a kind of sadness to him too, because he leaves her behind, right? Uh, in, in doing so, um, and merges with something greater uh, as, he, as he conceives it, or as he, as he believes. I, mean, I guess ultimately maybe it's a bit of a leap of faith on his part. Uh, he might not really know what he's getting into there. But yeah, yeah. I, I wonder, um, like, how his journey from the ending on could be explained. Uh, you know, it, are the the storytellers basically saying this character is now part of an, an existence that we as humans can't understand, so can't even write about? Like, is there a finality to his story simply for that reason? It's yeah. It's a point at which so there's there's some speculation, right? That there's uh, much like Deus itself had this kind of time limit that it had to resurrect by, that there's perhaps a similar kind of clock counting down for existence itself, uh, that there's like a give and take between the higher dimension, the lower dimension, as, as sort of, you know, what we would talk about as souls or, or something, energy sort of moves between the two. Uh, this is what the, the study guide guy was explaining to me. He was like, in terms of that story, um, if there is a kind of you know, time limit or 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 a problem where there's um, going to be a essentially an end to existence as we understand it. Um, then Krellian might be you know involved in uh, either facilitating that right, like allowing that to happen and letting everything sort of like collapse back into um, in, in infinitude. You know, like beyond the beyond, right? Or he could be involved in. Uh, potentially sacrificing himself in some way to stave off such a, such a collapse of the wave, right? And, and permit the, the wave to do what it does and then permit the, you know, the four-dimensional world of, of existence to do what it does, right? And, and sort of maintain. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like there is, there is possibly fodder for more stories, uh, but they get quite convoluted. And yeah, I don't know that we really can get beyond uh, in terms of like how sort of transcendent this moment is, I don't know if we can one up that uh, with any further storytelling. Really, it's just kind of rehashing the same thing, but you know, on another scale, another time scale, another um, yeah, sort of stretches the the mind in, in terms of what that would even look like. So, which is cool. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There was um, there was a meme on Twitter that. Um, I should have saved and sent to you because I think it's relevant, but it says the basic gist of it is that, you know, JRPGs be like 
Chapter one, go save this kitten from a tree. <laughs> Chapter six, kill God. Like that's <laughs> kind of the trajectory. It, it, you know, and it's, it's such a great sort of arc. It's, it, you know, can be endlessly mined. So I, I kind of feel like there's gotta be a point in the Xenogears saga where we have to sort of start the cycle over again and begin with a very pastoral, simple, small town kind of tale that eventually builds up until you're, you know, it's a battle between dimensional realities by the end. <laughs> right, no, I, I think that's, that's very platonic in a way, right? Like this sort of concept of, of truth being such that if you sort of really understand any one thing, Right? If you like really save that kitten in some way, you are like saving all of exist all of sentient existence as we can understand it. Or you know, like you you um you have in your in your everyday sort of life, you have this participation in in ultimate reality um, in some profound way. Like I don't know, like most people, I think would say that's silly. But like yeah, we do like playing these video games. <laughs> we still like that. Um, that conceit, you know, that we, we do have uh, agency on all those different levels somehow, and they, they kind of do look similar. Um, yeah, I don't know, like, well, here's a question that I wanted to kind of pick your mind about a little bit was just like, how does playing these games look different uh, with the world and, and society as it is now, as it is since we last talked, right, which, which is to say, like, uh, COVID-19 has pretty much shut down uh, all travel, right? All, all that kind of, all those plans went out the window. A lot of people have had, you know, serious health problems or know somebody who has. Um, and it, the world just looks really different in, in all kinds of ways. Um, there's that. Uh, there's also, you know, the kind of political and social upheavals that have gone along with it. Um, ideologically, you know, people care a lot suddenly about whether or not you wear a mask and um, old sort of racial tensions have erupted in, in new ways um, with Black Lives Matter becoming a really mainstream thing, it seems like all of a sudden. Uh, so just like, yeah, what what is it to play a, an old JRPG now uh, as opposed to, you know, a few months ago? Or, or maybe that's just a naive question, but, um, but what do you think? Um, it feels hard to, um give a, a very comprehensive analysis because we're still in it. You know, we don't ha we haven't had that time to just sort of reflect backwards. You know, in terms of video games in general, like the big video game story of the quarantine, as far as I've observed has been Animal Crossing. Um, it's almost a meme now um, where, you know, uh, our lives now are basically being lived through th this very sort of idyllic, um, very peaceful, like it, it's, it's almost shocking how peaceful, kind, and good-natured of a game we all sort of flooded towards <laughs> during very stressful times. So I'm kind of wondering if we're looking for a bit of contrast for our, from our present reality with the video games we play now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, and that's an interesting one because it does have such a communal focus to it, right? Like, you can play it alone, I guess, but uh, a lot of the fun of the game, and I guess a lot of sort of being successful at the game too, uh, hinges on um, exchanging things with other people and um, going and visiting their town, right? And 
and all this and that. And so it's a way to, yeah, connect with other people when it's impossible to actually hang out in person, um, which is interesting because I think with RPGs, you know, these old ones, they're, they're a very solitary activity and they do tend to be very dark and <laughs> very uh, intense sort of experiences and, and not at all animal crossing. <laughs> um, but maybe, you know, but maybe now the way that I play this game now though, is like through talking with people about it, right? It's primarily not me sitting there playing the game. It's primarily me thinking through it and talking through uh, and, you know, trying to, to understand um, other people's takes on the game and, and stuff like that is, is where I'm at now. So um, yeah, maybe it's, it's kind of similar in a way. Well, again, this is very much a simplification, but the nineties were always considered to be at least in America, a, a time of relative, I guess, peace, you know, the economy was good. There weren't as many, I'll, I'll just say in a general way, it's considered to be a very sort of peaceful to the point of bland decade. Yet the, the art and the video games really sort of delve deep into dark material um, in a way that I feel, you know, it, it might be, you know, in times of peace, that's when you train your mind for like darkness and for all the, all the bad things that, that life can send your way. But once you're in that time of like turmoil and struggle, entertainment more is a, a salve. Mm -hmm. It's more of an escapist um, medium. And I, I think that's, you know, for a lot of historians, a lot of people who, you know, study the role of entertainment and, and movies and video games seems kind of like a, a, a general rule that, you know, entertainment is always either an escape or a challenge. And you want to escape when times are challenging and you want to be challenged when times are simpler and perhaps maybe easier. So I, I think it's, it's not a coincidence that, you know, you have these almost, uh, yeah, the exorbitantly sort of convoluted games like Xenogears that are narratively just so convoluted um, and dark um, and also sort of like chaotic in its storytelling um, at a time where maybe people wanted to be challenged more. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And yeah, the the kinds of challenges that Xenogears poses um, are, they, they actually overlap kind of interestingly with the the health problems that are, are facing us now, right? They, they postulate essentially a world in which uh, human beings are such masters of their own like biochemistry that they can um, not just like heal or, you know, uh, address any, any illnesses, but like physically, you know, they can change their form. Um, they can, essentially cast spells, you know, and um, <laughs> they are not bound uh, by any apparent limitations uh, in terms of the, the energy they can bring to bear um, in, in doing this kind of stuff. So uh, it's a weird, I guess, a weird reflection of the reality we're in where we have such uh, scarcity with resources like health resources and um, such disparities, you know, 
uh, between people who do have access to good healthcare and, and people who don't. Um, but yeah, maybe, I guess that's kind of in the game too, right? You have, you have people who are literally up in the sky and people who are down on the earth. So huh, as I talk about that more, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that it's, it can be going both ways, but, but yeah. What do you think about the, um, the, the sort of health and, and ethics kinds of questions that Xenogears seems to pose uh, with respect to our, our current situation? Well, it, it does seem that Xenogears wants to present a version of society that has like extreme class differences to the point where it's almost, it, it's, well, it's not almost, it's literally represented by where the different classes reside. You know, some live on the ground itself while, you know, the higher classes are literally higher. They're, they're in the sky. Um, and in the same way, you know, health, health seems to be something, it's almost like a commodity that the higher civilization has and the lower civilization is simply a means to that. Um, you know, the, the, the lambs are, are basically used as food. <laughs> they are, yes. Uh, which is one of the big reveals of the game. <laughs> uh, one of the stranger moments as well. Um, it's like, what? Why? <laughs> why do they? Why? Yeah. Yeah. So well, it's like they, they, do, they do this. And that's part of the convoluted nature of this, this story, right? The chaotic nature of it, right? It's like, there isn't really, to me at least, a clear reason why if the people on the surface have access to food, the people in the sky haven't got it except through <laughs> the the bodies of of other human beings it's bizarre uh yeah yeah but well <laughs> you know the the system um the soylent system obviously referencing the 1970s sci-fi movie yeah. um you know it, it's it's always there's always been a class critique there in science fiction where the lower classes are essentially looked at as a resource and you know one can make an, an argument that that's a literal reality as well, but it's, oh, it's been portrayed in science fiction as something sort of literal, visceral, um, where, you know, the dystopia is really just a dystopia for the lower classes. The, the higher classes are essentially living it up. You know, they're, they're able to, one, in a complete and comprehensive way, exploit the proletariat not just for their labor, but for their literal beings. They can, in the matrix, they can be drained for their energy. In Soylent Green, they can literally be eaten. Um, and, you know, just the, the term lambs, you know, lambs are a, a, a chat, you know, form of chattel. And so, in real life, and so, yeah, the, this, this class system as it's represented, it, you know, has a long tradition in science fiction. And I, I think that's why, Another reason why I like Xenogears so much is that it draws from science fiction traditions, not only Eastern ones, but Western ones as well, and just blends them all together in a way that just feels very unique and very comprehensive. Yeah. And something about that moment, too, that helps it sort of hit home, although by itself that's already super weird, the way that the revelation comes about is like Satan, your sort of guiding figure, who you started to sort of know has more going on maybe he allows Faye and ellie to sit there and eat this food um and he doesn't you know tell them 
he lets them experience the horror of what they've done. Like a few screens later, you, you, you come upon the factory itself, right? And, um, and they realize that they've been eating, you know, the, the sort of transformed bodies, right, of, of surface dwellers who've been experimented upon and probably tortured, you know, and gone through incredible pain. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a heck of a way to, like, get that story beat across. Um, and again, it's sort of like, it, it does make me wonder, I guess, about the ways that, uh, I, I don't know, I think a really simple example would be like in my own life, I, I know that eating meat is like bad in lots of ways, but I still do it. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite there with you as a vegetarian yet. Um, but, um, but I, I guess somehow having that um, put in my face right through through the the kind of representation that we get in this game um, has made me really think about that a little bit harder than I otherwise might have. Um, I, I don't know if I'll quite make, you know, make the leap and, uh, and give up eating uh, animal food. But, but that's, again, sort of like just one example. I'm sure there's many, many ways that like, the things that I do in, in my daily life are having a terrible effect on somebody somewhere else, right? Um, that I just I think I need help seeing it. And I wonder if Xenogears, you know, properly sort of interpreted could, could provide that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think one of the most effective ways for art to present a moral quandary is by taking something that's familiar to you and present it in a way that alienates it from your experience. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, just the scene that you described, uh, one way to, I guess, make you shocked into an awareness of even human beings' own sort of very brute material reality is by <laughs> actually presenting it as food, yeah. um, which is, again, another trope. Speaking of Shakespeare, you know, that's, that's a, a story twist in Titus Andronicus. And, you know, it's, it's, it, and that's also like uh, how it's presented in Soylent Green. Like you're, you're shocked into this realization that what you thought was food was actually a person. Um, and then that kind of like breaks down the delineation between humans and animals, because if we can consider something food at, at one point that, that it turns out to be a human, then how are we different from animals? Um, and it, that's another way that it, that the game presents the class system. You know, these are all ostensibly human beings, but one, the terrestrial humans are essentially treated like animals. Right. And, and I think that's sort of the great thing about Ellie's current, um, incarnation, right? Her current manifestation is like, she comes from this sort of higher society, whatever, um, and uh, is is encountering um, a surface dweller who subverts a lot of her, you know, the things that she's been prejudiced uh, or you know, sort of brainwashed. Even um, the the story she's been told, um, and and so yeah, then for her, I think to sort of see her society um, from this other perspective uh, is really is really powerful throughout the story. But then yeah, it particularly there at the, at the Soylent 
factory system. And her father, you know, of course, uh, great, you know, Oedipal sort of thing here. Her father has been in charge of this factory, uh, although he knows it's bad. Um, but uh, that's, that's just another layer of her sort of horror at what's happening there. Um, and so there's a weird thing throughout this game, too, of like the, uh, I, I guess it was like a, a gameplay thing that wasn't fully developed, but like throughout the game, you can eat food or drink, you know, drinks and stuff, and they'll change your weight. Like the characters can get weighed in various places, and um, the game will like notify you if your weight goes up or down a little bit after you eat something. It's, it's really weird. Um, I don't know quite what the, the point of that is other than to, again, sort of bring our attention to this, you know, it's literal, but also a metaphor, I guess, for, um, for sort of uh, injustice and, um, and the kinds of cannibalism that we were engaged in without realizing it. So, um. I actually totally forgot that aspect yeah. of the game. I, I, was it meant to be a mini game that they didn't flesh out or did they mean for it to be more of an element of the story? I really, yeah, I really don't know. I really think it could be another of these things that the developers are sort of like messing with you as the player, like thinking that it might matter, you know, but it really has no effect on anything. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe at one point it was going to affect like your stats in battle or something. But one really, you know, telling example of that is in when you're in the, the uh, D block prison and you can eat like these things that have really impressive sounding names like they say they're going to do something to you um but actually they have no real effect other than like a slight change in in your character's weight which doesn't matter at all but i think but i think that the gears do have a weight component to like whatever algorithm determines their different statistics i think that they it does actually matter whether a gear is heavier or uh, or not it like slows it down or, or speeds it up I think yeah but um but anyway that's all kind of like in the weeds I think but but I did I, I do want to come back to this kind of power question right like the the people in Solaris have the ability to make the world a utopia for everyone but somehow that would threaten their sort of hold um and what they're sort of up to so they don't so they yeah have this sort of elaborate system of of inequality instead um and i i wonder about that sort of with respect to uh you know human nature i think is such that we we have enough technology at this point we probably could be doing a lot better uh but we just aren't and <laughs> we we just right. need to struggle uh so like is that something the game is sort of putting in our face too? Like, even if you have the means to make life better for more people, there's stuff, there's stuff that will, will keep you from doing that, um, that you need to face sooner or later. Like, yeah, I don't know. It seems to draw upon one of the major themes or uh, revelations in 1984, mm -hmm. um, where, uh, if my, my memory is failing me a little bit, I think his name is Winston, uh, when O'Brien mm. reveals to Winston that um, all of the wars are basically manufactured in order to keep, for there to uh, keep scarcity and keep people in a state of need, when in reality there's 
um, the capacity to feed everyone, clothe everyone, give everyone, you know, all the services that they need. Um, but in order for the all-powerful governments for Big Brother to remain in power, they have to manufacture scarcity. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a common idea, again, at least in science fiction, that, you know, power hungriness is just, it, it happens to be a nature, uh, uh, the nature of certain groups of people. Um, it's not necessarily something that's learned. Um, and because of that, you know, we have these situations where a utopia could arise, but it's essentially blockaded by the unfortunate realities of human nature, or in the case of Xenogears, of uh, the nature of, you know, the, the inhabitants of the, of the planet. So, yeah. No, I, I, I hope that answered your question. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a good example. It, it is because um, I, I feel like the the political kind of machinations that Solaris is up to, um, I, don't, I don't know that they are as clear as what we get in 1984, which is obviously like really like laying it out ni nice and, and, and in your face. Um, whereas, yeah, the Solarian, you know, elders, they're doing some kind of complicated scheme to resurrect their version of God uh, and fly off into the stars to do battle. I don't know what, I don't know what they really want to do exactly, but they do want to, you know, um, remain in power for sure. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So the, the other kind of aspect to this, I guess, is um, in, in the particulars of their technology, uh, they have, you know, uh, they have these gears which are huge giant weapons right the the macro scale um and that's impressive and all and they're they're pretty cool but then what it really comes down to it seems like as you get later in the game is the is the micro scale the nano uh technology um that's that's what's gonna sort of unlock for for krellian who's who's sort of the master of this that's what's gonna unlock his um full potential uh, and and it's ultimately, I guess, sort of what's um, going to unleash Ellie's true nature um, and and phase uh, ultimate. You know, the gear that he ultimately gets is like modified somehow uh, with with nanotechnology. It seems like this is the uh, this is sort of the the reason behind the really really powerful enemies that you fight at the end of the game. Um, that seem to have like the ability to heal themselves immediately, uh, but then you can neutralize that with your own nanotechnology. I don't know. So in the game, it's like this sort of ultimate power, essentially, um, right. miniature little machines. But um, but we're kind of on the cusp of of having that in real life too. Uh, I, I guess yeah. I I'm curious mm -hmm. if if we can sort of take. What Xenogears is doing as as some kind of um, uh, you know prophetic or warning maybe like you know we, we think that um, you know geopolitics is a struggle that that comes down to warfare or, or economics even but really it's going to be about like biotechnology and like who is able to sort of harness this thing first um, I, I don't know like does that seem like a valid 
takeaway uh, here, and and what do you make of that that aspect of the game, the nanotech stuff? Well, just in general, I, I think the allure of nanotechnology is that rather than um, adding on to humanity, like say with macro technologies like cybernetics, you can fundamentally fundamentally change humanity. Mm -hmm. um, you can change humanity on the molecular scale. Um, and another thing is that nanotechnology is invisible. And so you can change humanity, you can alter it in a way that, that actually on a psychological level feels more natural. Um, instead of you know, having a mechanical arm because you lost an arm in an accident, you could possibly regenerate the arm. So, it so from a sensory perspective, it looks identical to the one you already had. Um, so I, I think nanotechnology seems more powerful because it allows, it allows us abilities while at the same time appearing to ourselves to s still be completely human. Yeah, no, yeah, that's an interesting, so like the, the sort of personification of this in the game is uh, the girl Emeralda, who's been, you know, encased in, uh, in, a, in this underground, you know, civilization for 4,000 years, whatever. She's brought back to the surface, Krillian, uh, you know, he studies, he extracts whatever information it is he needs about how she was made. And then he allows you to um, sort of recover her and she rejoins your party at that point. Um, and she ends up being uh, sort of the, the sort of the third piece, I guess, to the, the Faye and Ellie kind of dyad that we get. Um, she's like their child, essentially, that they created uh, in one of their former incarnations or something. Um, and so her, her inclusion, she's like the last new character that's, that's included. Um, and it seems like there's, there's probably more that they were planning to do with her in terms of gameplay, but, but there is a pretty cool side quest you can do late game to, to sort of recover more of her story, the story of the Faye and Ellie of that time um, and what they were up to. Um, but yeah, the, so there's like a kind of, there's a kind of hopefulness. Yeah. Like you're describing it, it feels more natural. It feels more human uh, actually. And, and she is kind of indistinguishable from the other playable characters. She does, you know, uh, turn her hair into a weapon and stuff like when she <laughs> attacks, it, like turns her hair into a spiky ball that she whacks the enemy with. But, you know, aside from that, she, she's basically just like, anyone else um but yeah uh, and yeah i think that the healing the healing kind of potential there is is really remarkable um but but it does seem like there's also this threat right like the uh the limiter that has been placed on the surface dollars when it's removed it it triggers this this mutation this kind of horrifying mass mutation um of everyone who's not your party basically mm -hmm. uh yeah and so there, there's this kind of danger there too um i don't know i don't know how well we're prepared to to face that uh i'm not, I'm not sure but then again um i think this is all still speculative I, i'm not sure though is nanotechnology a thing just yet it is i am um... 
just on the little bit of research I did, it, it doesn't seem yet to be um, really a technology that uh, affects humans on a like physical level. I, I know they use technology in order to measure, I guess, like the molecular count of a, a, a solution, like a particular um, molecule in a solution, mm -hmm. because the, the sensors are so tiny, they could literally like count them all. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, but it, it definitely feels like we're, we're at that stage where it's about to truly explode and, and advance rapidly. Um, yeah. And I think even the people who are involved in nanotechnology, like their descriptions of, of the future of it kind of sounds like a science fiction writer's description of it. It's, you know, nanotechnology that can hunt down cancer cells and, and basically eradicate all disease, um, as well as provide um, sensory enhancements, um, various things like that. So it, it seems like the, the science fiction speculators and the scientists are kind of in agreement about what direction it's heading towards. Yeah, no, that that's, so th there's like, a few possible futures, right, that we can kind of imagine uh, with the help of our, our classic sci-fi, right? We have this sort of dystopian likely scenario <laughs> by, by all accounts um, where, you know, this technology or something like it uh, is developed but deployed poorly um, or is in a limited, you know, uh, limited quantities, it's, it's scarcity is held down artificially and, and its control is imposed on the masses by that means, right? Um, or maybe, possibly, we have a sort of like happy ending, like Xenogears, we, we'd go through a dark period of uh, 500 or 10,000 years or however many years you want to extend it along, but then we, we do get to this, this good sort of happy, safe place at the end of it all. Um, that that seems possible i don't know uh again if 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 nanotechnology can sort of fundamentally alter human nature then then maybe that's maybe that's the only way we ever get to a a, a such a such a happy and serene future um i don't know it's it's certainly interesting though um I was actually thinking of a different formulation that's not, that's not necessarily a utopian dystopian dyad. I, I guess it could be depending on your uh, uh, political ideology, but I was thinking you, know, you can almost see nanotechnology bringing the conceptual endpoint of either capitalism or communism. Mm -hmm. um, nanotechnology, obviously because of its, its sort of like enhancement potential, um, could either create an elite ca caste that's insurmountable, you know, the, the haves can, can sort of enhance themselves, eradicate disease amongst their classes, um, basically create superhumans right. um, through nanotechnology, or nanotechnology could literally eradicate, eradicate not only inequalities, but any sort of barriers between individuals. I mean, it's, it's not difficult to um, imagine a type of nanotechnology that allows for something that seems like telepathy, right. uh, which could essentially create, to put a, a very sci-fi twist on it, a hive mind. So, uh, so literal, um, I guess, uh, 
yeah, a, a sort of endpoint of what you would think a community could be, where there's essentially no barriers, no no um, delineations between people. Mm. So that that's a, another possible way way of describing the different paths it could take. Sorry, I have a a tickle in my throat. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is that is a a totally valid. I think uh, sort of taking the the two yeah competing ideologies uh, to their logical sort of extreme, right, um, aided by such a technology. Yeah, and then I mean, there's also like the, I guess the very real possibility that um, computers will just get there first, right? That will hit the singularity, right? This is another famous sci-fi thing that's like actually pretty likely to happen within our lifetime, um, I, I guess, in, in, insofar as we could sort of calculate the odds of that sort of thing. But like then the technology uh, runs away with, you know, its its own development uh, and doesn't need humans at all uh, and yeah either keeps us around as entertainment just to like see what we're up to like a uh, feeds on us like a matrix kind of scenario or, or something like that or just yeah it's this the end of um, uh, meat bodies right and that's that's done uh, and we just have cybernetics or something um, yeah which is I guess that's probably like depending on your again yeah like you said depending on your your ideology or something you might you might suppose that that's no better or worse than one of those other possibilities that was outlined there um, like yeah we're effectively changing or just uh, canceling human beings <laughs> yeah gosh well I so I don't know I mean. Uh, do you do you feel like one of those scenarios is any more or less likely, or is it just impossible to say? Well, I think it's impossible for me to say. Um, if I were more technologically minded, maybe I could pred predict what's the most likely scenario. Um, I do. Um, in terms of what I like, what I'm particularly interested in, I do wonder about just perception, how nanotechnology will just change our perceptions of reality. Um, you know, there's the famous Clark's third law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was thinking about how nanotechnology is invisible. And so it's not like, you know, the original, you know, Model T, where, you know, macro technology, you can see all of its components and how they relate to each other. And so you can actually, you can have a, a very sensory relationship with the technology. And um, I would say, you know, when technology was macro, you know, it almost gets to the point where people like fetishize it. And I, I think that's, that's best visualized for like steampunk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this idea of really identifying with all of the components and the machinations of technology. But when technology is invisible, which even with like computers, it essentially is with our iPhones, with our, with our computers, we don't see the constituent parts. Usually most of us don't, we just see the interface. Mm -hmm. And so I think as technology gets more advanced, we know we no longer interact with the mechanics, we just interact with the interface. And with nanotechnology, the interface basically looks like reality. And so then we're getting into 
a perception that is like magic. Um, where the interface is so indistinguishable from reality and we have these effects that are, that cannot be explained by either the layperson or even the expert at this point. And so it feels like we're casting spells. I mean, even a telephone call in a way feels like a spell um, because we don't see moving parts that allow for the effect to happen. And so, and I, I think this is, this is something that really is an important deep narrative element of, um, of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Gene Wolfe says that, you know, the only difference between um, science, science fiction and fantasy is, you know, how aware we are of how things work, how, how we understand the, me- the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, like, you could explain, you could rewrite the Lord of the Rings so that it's all nanotechnology rather than magic, rather than spells. And you essentially could have the same story. So it, it, it's, it's funny, it's like a cyclical thing. It's like the world seems like magic when you don't understand it, then you understand it, and then it, the magic becomes technology, but then the technology gets so advanced that the average person can't understand it anymore and it becomes magic again. Yeah, so, yes. yeah it's a cyclical thing and it, it um, I, I see we're, we're about to enter a new era of magic, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, the, um, I think the, the difference or the, the caveat I would offer there is a metaphysical one and also a, a technical one where when you think of Tolkien, I think it matters, maybe the Lord of the Rings, you could rewrite that way, but it matters within the scope of his sort of concept of what he's up to that there is a kind of creator figure who 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 transcends that um that reality and and i think it's the same with um whatever our sort of picture of the world is if if we have a universe that's mechanistic then yeah there's no difference but but if we have a world that is um like xenogear's world Right where there's a where there's a transcendent existence uh, of waves, right that that emanate forth the reality we can perceive, um, then it does matter maybe um, whether it's magic or whether it's nanotechnology, um, and yeah, magic is sort of just in this case just a sort of another word for um, the the emanations of something that's non-physical but yet has physical impacts uh I, I don't know if that's you know too again I, I guess you could sort of reduce that uh ultimately to to be indistinguishable like you, you could never really get at the truth of, of a of a claim one way or the other about what what is reality actually right? is it actually um physical is it actually got some other component to it that that escapes i i think but I do think it matters uh, that that people should sort of be able to to quibble over that, you know, and, and get, have that give them pause about what they're up to. I don't know. Oh yeah, it, it it definitely matters if you're looking for an answer that goes even beyond the scope of any piece of writing right. or art. Um, are is it referencing an actual transcendent divine? um entity or is it 
just describing something that seems mm -hmm. to be, you know, ineffable. Um, but once, but once you sort of peel back the layers and understand it, you see the sort of gears, you know, and they might be, you know, on the nano level. Um, so, so I guess that's, yeah, that's a larger question that is almost to the level of like the per personal metaphysics of any particular reader. Um, but I do wonder once nanotechnology takes hold, if we'll have to question whether or not what we thought was unanswerable, at least to our you know present minds, might in fact just be due to us just not being able to see to see the the the, the microscopic elements that are at play. Because yeah. we'll 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 understand that like you know we'll be able to trick our own eyes just through technology that we ourselves develop. Yeah, and we'll be able to make reality the way that we otherwise would make a, a work of imagination, right? Um, yeah. Like unlimited uh, in that way. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's, again, I think Xenogear is really just, it, it really brings that out with the, uh, the concept of this, um, this infinite energy generating device that like nobody understands <laughs> but, but yeah. somehow powers everything uh all the gears right have these generators that are are uh connected to the the ur the ur generator right the source mm -hmm. um the zohar um and yeah i just i think that 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 concept is just so interesting um that that i don't I guess I I probably would never have cared too much about um, sci-fi and stuff if I hadn't played uh, Xenogears back in the day. Like I I think I am sort of more temperamentally drawn to uh, fantasy than sci-fi personally, um, but uh, but somehow the the kind of philosophical questions that that Xenogears poses with all these little uh, metaphors and things are they're, they're just endlessly interesting to me so gosh yeah and i, I think xenogears is such a it's just such a great way to introduce someone to just science fiction in general because they're getting almost like xenogears itself is almost like a survey yeah. of, of just like a broad swath of science fiction themes tropes and like literal references um yeah, there's so many avenues you can go after playing Xenogears to just explore. It's like The Simpsons, the, the, the golden era of The Simpsons. Like people watched it and then as they delve deeper into it, they realize all of the, the references and parodies and satires that are nested within it. And so that it opens up a world of, of uh, media that they never uh, realized. Yeah, so, yeah, so supposing that we are going to do more of, a, more of science fiction um from here like what would you i guess recommend uh for for the person who likes xenogears and might not know a lot of the the sci-fi um behind it or beyond it uh where does one go well it has some pretty like mainstream references but um i think one of the things one of the the uh inspirations it touches on that is a little bit more obscure that also has um, a video game attached to it is I have no mouth and I must scream. I remember uh, you bringing that one up. Yeah. A long time ago we were talking, you mentioned that. 
I still haven't read it. What, what is it? Sorry, I forgot. So it's a, it's a novella and it, it's about um, an artificial intelligence that um, eventually gains sentience. And instead of being, and this actually, I'll be able to connect it to Xenogears again in, in a funny sort of like flipped way. But um, so it, it, it grows spiteful of humanity for creating its existence because of the suffering that um, existence brings. And so essentially, it, this isn't really spoiling it um, because it's more about the ideas, but it essentially kills off humanity except for, I think it's like five people it chooses to essentially torture um, for the rest of their existence. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because in Xenogears, it has, you know, the sort of like trope, but flipped. Because in I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream, it's the machine just basically destroying humanity that, um, that created it. While in Xenogears, it's like the humanity that's destroying the machine that created it. So it's kind of like, it's like the flip, the reverse. And when it's the machines destroying, obviously, it's a dystopia, but in Xenogears, it's a utopia because obviously, you know, the value system is always centered around human beings. Yes, yes, super interesting. All right, so that's Harlan Ellison. Is he an American sci-fi author? He is, I'm pretty sure about that. Okay, so there's that. Um, so there's classic films, right? Like the Soylent Green, the Solaris, right? These two huge, like iconic uh, films uh, from different, isn't Solaris a, a Russian movie, I think? It's Tar Sarkovsky, I think that's how his name is pronounced, mm -hmm. the director. Right, right. Um, and then I think you were saying earlier that you, you see the, the sort of literary sci-fi as having kind of two camps, right? Like you have the Dune people, and then you have the, uh, the what is it called, the Lost Sun? The, the oh, um, the Book of the New Sun. The new Sun, the New Sun, yeah. So you sort of have this divergence, I guess, uh, along the, the, those two uh, channels. Um, but uh, yeah, I've only ever read Dune. I haven't read Denny Jean Wolf. Um, so I'll have to get on that. Um, gosh. Yeah, yeah Jean Wolf, I, I feel, is a different type of reading experience simply because the real story is subtextual. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, which, which I think is an, an interesting way, uh, I guess, in terms of like subjectivity, what it means to read a story. Um, you either have like a very textual read or one that's purely subtextual. Um, and he does that by always using unreliable narrators. And so not only is the story a puzzle, but it always, you know, you, you question subjectivity just in general as you read a story, which is typically stories do not want you to do. Right. <laughs> they want you to accept the story that they're presenting. Um, That's fascinating. And are, is he also, I'm trying to just like get my, my background straight on who these people are. Is he also an American author, Gene Wolf? Yes, he is. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure about Herbert either. I assume American, but I'm not sure. I think he is, yeah. And then we've got, gosh, okay. So then the name Krellian, of course, is like a, a messed up, rendering of Karelin from um, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. Um, so that's another major one in the background here that I have, I have read, um, that one. 
Um, yeah, so there, it's like a, um, a hyper advanced race that comes and makes contact with humanity. And Karelin is the, uh, the leader uh, of this contact force, although we find out later he's kind of a small fry within the scheme of things. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's good. It's worth, worth a look. Um, yeah. One influence I wish I could trace, it, it feels like it should be obvious, but I'm just not knowing where to pull it from, um, but just is, is the look of the gazelle ministry. It's so out of the, it, it's noticeably out of style with the rest of the game. Yeah. Um, with its like color bars, <laughs> you know, the yeah. team color bars, and it's, it's very cyberpunk. Um, and I, I want to know like what the the visual inspiration for them is. I mean, to me, it's like it's like a space VCR, and, <laughs> and I want to say it's like it's like Darth Vader after he gets his helmet taken off. You know, it's sort of like that. Only they're entirely data, right? They, there's no reason they should look like that because they're just information in this like data bank. Um, Whereas he still has a physical form, although a corrupt one. Um, but yeah, I feel, I feel like there are also elements of like Hellraiser, of yeah. Um, yeah, like Clive Barker, but also it's weirdly vaporwave. Are you familiar with the genre of vaporwave? I am not. Um, so it's sort of an aesthetic that's based on taking um, little technological visual and audio elements from the 80s and 90s and um, basically distorting them and um, mixing them with like even like old classical Roman influences. Um, but it's very interesting. It, it is a sort of like fetishization and sort of like nostalgia uh, delving into of like just the emotions that this era creates the 80s and 90s in people who grew up with it. Um, but it, 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 it like takes elements like color bars from TVs, the sort of like static, um, uh, just that, again, that VCR, that, that sort of like that 80s technological look. Um, I feel like that's going on somehow. Oh, yeah. With, with the Gazal ministry, yeah. And I, there's, so there's interesting ways that I think this does map onto or sort of like prophesy the moment that we're in, right? This game is from like 20 years ago yeah. um, or more. I forget, but it's like, it's so, I don't know. Maybe I've just been playing it too much, but it seems very relevant. Um, and, uh, you know, the particulars of this, this pandemic and this sort of moment of uh, racial reckoning that we're in, they obviously are not like particular to the game, but, but the concept that something like that should happen sooner or later, uh, I feel like it, it really, it really foresaw the developers really, you know, I, I don't know how serious they were about it. Like they, they probably would say, you know, this is all just a bunch of stuff to make the game interesting, but, um, but no, like I, I do think there's something there. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it just, the game itself just re rewards replaying, I, I would say. So along well, with all these classic sci-fi things, yeah. Well, just the, it, so in my graphic design program, um, we, we watched a video called Everything is the Remix. <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's, that exemplifies just the, 
the strategy that they had with the world building and, and with its narration and with their, with their influence that they brought in. It, it, this extensive remix of so many elements that it almost, it almost could not not be portentous of the future. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's like casting such a wide net and it's like experimenting on all these different levels um, that, yeah, it does feel very fresh in that way, even if just the technology that, you know, it was built on seems so primitive at this point, which is crazy to think because, you know, when we were growing up and playing this, it seemed like cutting edge. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it just, it was really experimental. Absolutely. And I do, I do hope that, um, you know, although it is a weird kind of place to go for it, I hope it does bring some solace to people who might be discovering it for the first time now uh, with everything going on. Um, it certainly does for me. Yeah. I think in just even the music, you know, the music is just, oh, gosh, so, so soothing. So, um, and more than that, yeah, it just like, it helps, uh, helps me process a lot of stuff that otherwise is just overwhelming. Um, so yeah, so thanks again, Jason, for taking all your time with this, uh, with this project here. I think this will be the, the end of this Xenogears interpretive dance that I've been up to for the past <laughs> so many months. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's about, I think I've said just about everything I could say about this game at this point, uh, for now anyway. Maybe I'll check back in a few years. But, um, but yeah, what have you been up to lately? Like, what, what's your new projects that you've been working on? Oh, I wish I could say I was doing more creative stuff or delving into personal interests as of this moment. Unfortunately, it has been very work-related, mm. as boring as that sounds. Um, feel that. Yeah, um, but I, I have been, my interest in video games has sort of been revitalized and I, I'm interested in delving into the, the present um, video game era, yeah. which is, you know, the technology is so leaps and bounds ahead of what I'm used to. Um, so I'm wondering how that'll change the experience. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm a few years behind at this point. The newest game and what I've been playing recently is Breath of the Wild, the Zelda game. For um, I have it on the Wii U. It's also on the Switch, and that's, that's probably a little better uh, experience. I'm finding that it is overwhelmingly difficult to keep track of what all the buttons do because the, <laughs> the control console is this enormous handheld thing. Um, but it's, it's a really fun game. I mean, I do like it a lot. It's, it's very very fun and, and interesting to play. Um, but, uh, but man, I, I just, I think I've been ruined, you know, by growing up in the golden age of the SNES, the PlayStation. Like I, I don't think any games will, will hit that, that high mark for me ever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's worth giving them a look anyway. Do you have particular games in mind that you wanted to, to check out? Um, well, it does seem like a lot of games now essentially are trying to mimic the experience of watching a movie just with added interactivity with games like The Last of Us right. um, and things like that. So I am, I am curious because I feel like that's a much different mode of playing than even a cinematic game like Xenogears, which is still heavily based on um, 
gameplay that that is very like you see the the guts of it like a lot of games now uh, the game element of it the the mechanics of it are sort of invisible they they want it to be very seamless to seem very cinematic where you're not even aware like you know the pop-up display doesn't tell you exactly what's going on um while the games of our era you know it, it was almost another language like that pop-up display the menus all the different information bars, like it was almost like you had to learn a new language um, while you were playing. While games nowadays, it almost seems like they want you to be able to play the moment you start, like and, and know intuitively. Yeah, they want games to be very intuitive now. While before, it was almost like yeah, you sort of had to become an expert in in the the very like. Me mechanics of the game before you could even pass level one. Right. right. Yeah. Dude, we, we still need to play Dungeons and Dragons at some point. You, you're describing this sort of language of mechanics of the game. Like, that's, that's what my mind goes to. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. One day we've got to do that when you, when you have some time with all your work and stuff. Um, let me know. Well, it, it seems like it's the gold, it's a new golden era with Zoom. Um, oh. So. Yes, we, we transcend time and space. <laughs> we are unlimited in our in our ability to move about and communicate. So, yeah. Well, thanks again. Um, uh, take care of yourself uh, and good luck with everything. And uh, hopefully, we'll talk soon. All right. And yeah, thanks again for inviting me on the show. And um, yeah, we'll talk soon. Okay. See you. Bye.